Alright. Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham is approximately 140 years old, as the first words of this chapter come out onto the page. And he truly has been blessed. An incredibly, amazingly blessed man. And he's a great example for foreigners who seek to follow the Lord. Abraham left it all, left his land, became a foreigner in a foreign land, a sojourner, as we talked about last week. Left it all to follow the leading of the Lord. And here at the end of his life, we see that Abraham is blessed in all things. Better than he could have imagined. Better than if he had stayed in his homeland and developed, you know, riches and lands and animals and servants and all that back home in the foreign land by following God. He's blessed in all things. This is a standard, by the way, for the sojourner. The standard that you leave it all knowing that God will ultimately bless you in all things. He promises to do so. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says, Don't worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And this to me is the big believe it or not verse in the Bible. Do you believe it or not? We can say we believe it all we want. But when it comes down to it. Talking about the basics of life. Clothing, food, do we truly believe that it's all in God's hands? That He will provide? That He will bless? I mean, that, that's the tough part. When you sit down to do the bills, that's when you begin to go, Okay, Lord, I believe you, but I've got to pay some things off here. I've got to take care of some business here. So I'll get around to you eventually, but right now, just let me deal with this. You know, when we get to those points where the cupboard's bare and maybe there's not much money in the checkbook and we go, okay, um, I'm stressed out. And Jesus would say, do you believe me? What, do you actually think that as your father, he's going to create you? He's going to give you life as a small child, raise you up and then say, good luck. <laughs> You're on your own. Hope you can find some food today. <laughs> would any of you who are parents do that to your kids? Would I get up in the morning, get Hayden out of bed, find his backpack, <laughs> those of you who read the email, and just kick him out the door and say, find your way to school, we'll see you later. Hope you can find something to eat today. Oh, you're not dressed? Well, you can find something out there. Folks, I really, really believe that in the sojourning life that we're called to, Jesus is saying, trust me in even the littlest of things. Your clothes. Don't worry about it. We went round and round, Cheryl and I, looking for the box of her summer clothes. And if I get nailed tonight, we're just going to go right on. Okay? The birds attack, just ignore it. It'll wash off. But Cheryl and I, out, out to our storage unit, you know, we've got stuff here, stuff there. And she has a big box labeled, Cheryl Summer Clothes. And on the box it said, put at front of storage unit. <laughs> The only way we're going to find that box, I believe now, is to take everything out. Because it's probably in the back left corner, stacked under everything else. We can't find it. What do we do about clothes? Buy clothes. What? You have to buy new clothes. That's a lot, Marianne. We've already been there. She's saying, I need summer clothes. I'm going, do not worry then what we will eat or what you will wear for clothing. <laughs> yeah, it's easier for you to say, geez, man. Anyway. Jesus calls us to this kind of living and day in and day out. Do we trust Him? Do we really believe that God has our best interest in mind? And if so, why do we work? Why do we stress? The sojourner knows that the Father knows that we need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and they'll all be added to you. Abraham knows that. In his old age, I, the King James Version is kind of funny because it says he was old and stricken with age. <laughs> he's stricken, you know. I like advanced in age. It's a little easier to, to read there. But he's blessed in every way. Abraham, through his ups and his downs at this point in life, has learned very well that Jesus takes care of our needs. Now, with that said, we are going to step into the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. Oh, no. 
So get comfortable. We may be here a while. 67 verses. Now, on average in our Wednesday night Bible studies, we cover 20 or 25. We're going to cover 67 verses tonight. Trust me. <laughs> you know, as I look at this, I, I thought for a moment, why is this one so long? Why this story any different than any other story? As a matter of fact, as we read through this, you'll see that the story is told. We go through, we follow Eliezer the servant. I, I believe it's Eliezer. And everything happens. And then Eliezer comes into Rebecca's house and he recounts the whole entire story again. You really get the same story twice in one chapter. What's the deal with that? I think the Holy Spirit, author of this book and of this chapter, is saying here to you and to me, saying to the bride, slow down for a minute. Stop and smell the roses that I picked for you. Wait a minute. Take a long, good look at what I have brought you to. At the relationship, it's breathtaking because like Rebecca, you are the bride of Christ. Take your time. Genesis 24.2 Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please, place your hand under my thigh. We're never going to get through all this tonight, are we? just no way. <laughs> and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And we've got a whole row here of high school and junior high guys who are going, put your hand where? <laughs> Again, let me remind you, if you didn't hear this Sunday, this is serious business here. Obviously, we wouldn't make this kind of an oath or a pact today. I'd recommend against it. But what's happening here, the symbol is, Abraham, he's old man, he's sitting down there, he says to his servant, come here, put your hand under my thigh. And he does. He puts his hand right underneath the thigh. And now he's stuck. He can't go anywhere. And so Abraham's going, I got something for you to do. And the servant's still stuck. You know, the, the, here's the deal. And I didn't make this up, so if you don't think this is funny, it's not my fault. But the deal is, this was a very heavy assignment. Get it heavy because it's on the hand. Anyway, the bottom line is this. What it means, what it means is Abraham is saying very seriously, put your hand here. Why? Because if you fail in this oath, the children of my loins, the children of my seed, will avenge me against you. This is serious business. You will only see this one other time in all of Scripture, this oath with the hand under the thigh. It's in Genesis 47, verse 29. It tells us when the time for Israel, Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel, that's a story up and coming, two, three weeks. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And Joseph did. And Jacob, Israel, was buried in a little cave in Hebron, the cave of Machpelah, along with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob's buried there. And, and his wife Leah, which is another very interesting love story, but that's for another time. So we understand this oath is of immense importance. This chapter is of immense importance. And we can hear the Spirit saying to us as we study it tonight, the bride matters greatly to the Son. The bride matters to the son. Now, remember the pictures in our story. Abraham, Abraham, as we read through this, represents God the Father. Isaac represents God the Son, Jesus. And the servant that Abraham calls in here represents the Holy Spirit. Now, he's most likely Eleazar of Damascus. We know that from Genesis 15, 1 and 2. Eleazar meaning helper. And Jesus says, I will send another helper to you, the Spirit of Truth. His name means helper. His name also, the Damascus part of his name, interesting, we said this on Sunday, it means silent as a weaver of sackcloth. A humble, quiet picture. A helper, silent, as a weaver of sackcloth, a picture of the Holy Spirit. 
John 16, 13, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative. Literally, Jesus says in John 16, 13, He shall not speak of Himself. This explains something to me, because I wondered, as studying this, why Eleazar's name isn't just written into the text. We have to kind of guess. This is most likely Eleazar. The oldest of his servants, the, the one of his household who had everything, the one who would have been heir had Isaac not been born, Eleazar. But his name's not mentioned. Why? Because in this instance, in this picture that we've seen drawn out before us, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak of himself. In Scripture, his role is not to speak of himself. In the world in which we live today, the Holy Spirit's role is not to exalt himself. Not to elevate himself, but to elevate Jesus. Jesus says, He will glorify me, John 16, 14, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. John 15, 26, Jesus went on to say, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Now, as I said, there is much confusion about the Holy Spirit in the church today. I myself am learning so much about how he works and how he moves and what he does. My understanding today versus two years ago, three years ago, vastly different. And I believe the same will be for all of us as we continue down this journey. Every day, every month, year of life, we will see the Spirit in new ways we never had thought possible. But in the church today, we see our humanity seeking experience. Seeking feeling. We want to sense God among us. And rightly so, because He's here. He is here with us tonight. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there, Jesus said. And He's here among us. And so we say, well, if He's here, I want to feel Him. That is a very human thing. And a very a good thing. A natural thing. To want to feel God. To want to know of His presence. But, in our desire to experience God, to be moved in worship, we can easily miss the primary role of the Holy Spirit. The most important role of, his, of the Holy Spirit. God is not about, listen to me, sensation. But He is about salvation. He's not here to tickle us. To make us feel like, ooh, that was Him. He just moved through. Not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm saying that's not the point. Point is salvation. He's not here for wonders and signs. He's here as a witness to the Savior. To magnify, to exalt the name of Jesus. The ministry of the Spirit is to emphasize the Son. Any moving of the Spirit in our world will always magnify Jesus. In the church today, any movement that is truly a Spirit-led movement will be a Jesus movement. If it's not, I submit to you, the Spirit is not involved. Because that's his main role. That is the big deal with the Spirit. If a particular display of the Holy Spirit serves to exalt or lift up a believer, or even to exalt, check this out, the Spirit himself, I believe that manifestation is not of the Holy Spirit. And that's important for us to understand. You may have heard of things like people being smitten. By the Spirit. You may have heard of things like holy laughter or barking in the Spirit. Anybody heard of barking in the Spirit? This is a legitimate thing that people have claimed happens. Again, I'm not here to pass judgment. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where anyone barks in the Spirit. <laughs> Praise God, give that kid a bone. <laughs> Did you know there's not a single reference in Scripture to people being overcome in such a way at all? Falling on the ground, rolling around, the Spirit just took hold of me. I couldn't help it. I, I was just overcome. You don't see that in the Bible. You don't. Well, what about Acts chapter 2? What about that? How about you never ask? Let's flip over there. <laughs> Acts chapter 2. While you're flipping, I'll go ahead and start reading. In the first verse, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues 
as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them, listen to this, was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed, they were astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, districts from Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God, because again the Spirit speaks of the mighty deeds of God and not of Himself. And they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, fisherman Peter, you love Peter, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose, because it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Listen to this. In the last days it shall be, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, you can read this and say, see, this is what I'm saying. They couldn't help themselves. They were overcome. They had to speak. The spirit took control, and off they went. And they're all speaking in all these tongues, and it was wild and outrageous and out of control. And that's not what I read here. Everybody heard the magnification of God spoken in their own language, not in any kind of gibberish. Now stay with me through the whole thing tonight. They heard in all these different languages what was being spoken. Peter is not drunk. Not wildly overcome. Not barking. Peter is lucid and clear. He's not staggering. And he gives one of the most eloquent messages ever given, I submit, in the history of the church. An amazing message simultaneously in multiple languages which I'm not sure happens real often I haven't done it myself the question is were the apostles in control of their speaking or were they smitten were they in trances unable to even control what was happening well Paul answers that question very clearly for us 1 Corinthians 14.31 Paul says for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets listen to that again the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets for God is not a God of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints what does that mean it means that someone who is given a gift by the Holy Spirit still has control of the usage of that gift. If a prophecy is given to a person, they don't have to prophesy. They're not forced into standing up and saying, I have a word from the Lord, I have to do it, I just can't help myself. That's not what Paul says. That's not to say you haven't received a prophecy or a word from the Lord. But the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. You do have control. You may receive some kind of a message from God, some kind of a vision. And I don't doubt in the least, folks, Joel prophesied it, Peter repeats it in Acts chapter 2, in the last days, our young men will see visions. There will be dreams, there will be prophecies. These things should be happening in the church in the last days, shouldn't they? We should expect that. But wildness and out of control, that's not the way of the Holy Spirit. Yes, He is living and active and moving. He is poured out on the church today. Legitimate prophecies, visions, dreams, tongues, healings. And I even believe, folks, raisings from the dead legitimately happen by the power of the Spirit today. Not often in America. Problem is there are many illegitimate scams as well. Some are just well-meaning believers seeking sensation. We all want it. I do. 
hey, I'll be the first to admit it, I want to feel God here. I want to touch Him. I want to experience Him. But we need to learn what the Bible talks about over and over. Physical sensation is not spiritual maturity. Those are two different things. And the deeper I go with the Lord, the more I understand Him, the more I love Him, doesn't mean the more tickled I am. Good example, I've been married now for almost 18 years. Used to be when Cheryl and I were first dating, when I'd see her, I would just get all you know, nervous and dry mouth. And, there she is, you know, and I don't get that way anymore. Sorry, hon. But I guarantee you, the relationship is deeper than it has ever been. It's where I want it to be. And that's how it is with the Lord. Folks, there are illegitimate scams known as the Bible calls them false prophets too. Con artists, heretics. The Bible is the map to help us through difficult waters and understanding all these things. So this be said, before we go on, the Spirit doesn't come upon a person to exalt either himself or the person or the person he comes upon but to magnify the name of Jesus for the purpose of drawing people to salvation. Now back to Abraham and his unnamed servant. Genesis 24, verse 5. The servant said to Abraham, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? And then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and he spoke to me, and he swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. And you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning his master. Interesting, Isaac never goes back to the land to get the bride. Jesus will not come back to the land to get the bride. We're going to meet him in the clouds. He's going to call us to him. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but he's waiting right now. You think you're longing for him? <laughs> Just wait. Verse 10. Actually, hang on. Before we get to verse 10, verse 8 here. Verse 8 is a real key to both the heart of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Read it again. It says, If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. If she's not willing to go, if she doesn't choose to come with you, you're free from the oath. Same thing between the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit does not force you to follow him. He will plead. He will convict. He will invite. He will even choose you, but he will not force Abraham tells his servant he's not to force the issue, and the Spirit will neither do so. The Spirit will not force himself on you two ways. He won't force himself on, on people evangelistically. The Spirit doesn't do that. He doesn't go around in the world and grab people and say, You will be a believer in Jesus. It's going to happen. You know, if, if forced evangelism worked, I'd get together a militia, arm ourselves well, and start going around telling people... Confess Jesus. Come on out. Get in the pond. Get in. I believe. Repeat after me. Click, I believe. This is not how the Spirit works. He will not force you evangelistically, but He will also not force Himself on you miraculously. The Spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, the prophet is never out of control. What, what is the picture Speaking of all the birds in here, what, what is the picture of the Holy Spirit in Scripture? The what? The dove. The dove. Gentle. Peaceful. Not the screaming hawk. Ah, down he comes, you know. I'm coming upon you now. Here we go. It's not... It's not the vulture who picks on your flesh. Lord, I don't want to go to church today. You know? He's not the hummingbird, you know, hyper and out of control. Woo, worship God, that's all we got, great. You know? He is the dove. He is the gentle, peaceful dove. Self-controlled. Verse 10. <laughs> the servant then took ten camels 
Two of the most odd words to circle in the Bible would be ten camels, but I'd encourage you to do that. I'll explain in a minute. He took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have, have appointed to your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. This is great. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. Now come those camels again. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. See, his prayer was answered, but he didn't know who she was yet. You ever been in that place prayer-wise? You've asked God to do something, and it all just falls into place, and you're going, Okay, is this it? Is this what you want? That's where the servant is right here. Listen, let me give you three things. If you want to be a servant of the Master, three things that you can do like the servant of Abraham. Number one, the servant of the Master prays in the will. He prays in the will. He's not here to accomplish a task for himself, to benefit himself. As a matter of fact, as we said, the servant would have been heir to all of Abraham's things if Isaac hadn't come along. But here is this servant, older overseeing the whole household, knowing that the true heir is Isaac and all these things were not his, and he prays for the will of his master. And that's a great model for our prayer life, to pray in the will. The servant is not here to accomplish for himself, but for his master. Prayer, folks, is not God's way of answering man's will on earth. Prayer is man's way of discovering God's will on earth. That's what it's about. It's not about getting what we want. It's not about going to God and saying, Okay, Lord, this stuff's going on in my life. I need you to fix it. Make it all right. No, the prayer of the servant is, Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, here's my life, this kind of mess that I have. What do you want it for? Where do you want me to go? What do you want to have happen here? The whole idea of praying is to align ourselves to the will of the Father, not aligning Him to the will of ourselves. Jesus knew this so well. Matthew 6.10, in the middle of this beautiful prayer, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, listen to that. Your will be done here like it is there. What happens in heaven? God speaks and it happens. God seeks, he seeks the, the, the angels to come around. They're there. Anything God wants, anything He pleases, anything He chooses, it's instantaneous. It happens in heaven. And Jesus says, that's what I'm praying for earth as well. Your will here as it is there. Jesus also said in John 5.30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me, like Jesus and Eleazar. The servant prays in the Master's will. One of the questions people often ask in life is, what's God's will for my life? What is His will for my life? Well, if you want to know what God's will is for your life, pray in the will of the Master. Ask Him what His will is. Seek His leading. Like C.S. Lewis said, I don't pray to change God, I pray to change me. So the servant of the Master prays in the will. Number two, the servant of the Master stays near the well. He stays near the well. This is fascinating to me. Have you ever noticed the number of times in Scripture when a man finds his bride at a well? This is the place it happens. The well. Not at a bar, not online. 
at the well. Isaac does. Jacob does. Moses finds his bride at the well. And even Jesus found his bride at the well. John chapter 4. You may recall the story. He and the apostles come into Samaria. And as they enter the city, he's tired. They're all tired. They're hungry. He says, go get some food. They head in to get food. And he sits down by the well. And up comes a woman in the heat of the day. At a time where none of the women go to draw water, but she comes up there alone. Her life's a mess. And Jesus asked her for a drink. Kind of like Eleazar asking Rebecca for a drink. She gives him a drink and they begin this conversation. And what's amazing to me in this conversation is that this Samaritan woman, who has had five husbands and now is living with a guy, she is the first person Jesus chooses to reveal that he is the Messiah to. She's the first one. A Samaritan woman. Well, Jesus found his bride at the well. She was the first of many who would be the bride of the church. But it was at the well. Why is that? Well, the well in Scripture is always a picture of salvation and of the Spirit. John 7:37. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers, rivers of living water. And it's yet another beautiful nuance of this portrait that Rebecca meets the servant at the well as the bride of Christ meets the spirit at the well of salvation. Isaiah 12 verse 3 tells us, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. By the way, unmarried people, single people, guys in the front row, take your time. But the well is a great place to go find your bride. That's the place you want to go. And they're going... The well? Out here, the well? You want to stand out there and wait for her to show up? The well's a great place to find your partner for life. I have my eye on two girls my senior year of high school. I'm a normal guy, okay? And two girls that I really like. Both of them had a name that started with the letter C. Now, one of them was a dancer. Actually, they were both dancers, but one loved to go dancing to clubs and stuff. Weekends, Friday, Saturday night. And she was in my church youth group. I knew her really well, knew her for years. But Friday and Saturday night, that was her dancing time. And she loved to go out and dance, and she just did this, and she was like hooked on it. And oftentimes, Sunday morning, she wouldn't even show up because she was so tired from the night before. I didn't see her much. The other girl, well, she wasn't a dancer so much as a prayer, as a journaler as one who was very busy in her youth group at a different church. When I wanted to do something with her, well, oh, she's on a mission trip to Mexico. Or when, when I called up, oh, yeah, she's, she's back in her room, I discovered later, praying. Okay, not to build up this second seat too much, because she's human and has her flaws as well, but I found, I found my wife at the well, at the place where salvation is given. A woman who was drawing from the Spirit, and for those of you who are not connected right now, you can, you can go ahead and, and, you know, find her anywhere you want. Find her at the high school, you know, find her online. Although I would recommend against that. <laughs> you can find her in a bar, and I'll see you for counseling later. Or, or you can seek her at the well, because a woman who is seeking after, a man, single ladies, who is seeking after the living water of the Spirit, that's the person you want to be wed to. Now, ten camels. What's the deal with the ten camels? I, I'm going to point this out quickly. We could probably spend a lot more time on this. But I just want to throw this out there, and maybe you might want to study this out on your own. The servant in verse 10, it goes back, go back to there, took ten camels from the camels of his master. Now, the number ten in biblical numerology is important. The number ten is the number of the law. The Ten Commandments. And so when the number 10 is used, there is an interesting connection there. The servant takes 10 camels. And notice what happens through the story. Rebecca then sees the 10 camels that the servant is bringing, the servant of Abraham, brings the 10 camels and she waters them, takes care of them, which was a lot of work. And then she brings them in and says later on in verse, uh, let's see, 25, we have both straw and feed and room to lodge in. We can take care of your camels. So now she begins to take care of these ten camels as well. Then, after all the stuff is done, and we'll get there in a few minutes, she mounts the camels and rides back with the servant to Abraham. So now she has seen the camels. She has cared for, tended to the camels. She's riding the camels. And then, at the end of the story, you may remember from Sunday, when she lifts up her eyes and sees Isaac. 
She dismounts. She gets off the camel. What's the deal with the camels? Well, the camels, being like the law, are a beautiful picture here of how we are brought by the Spirit to Christ. The Spirit uses the law to bring us to Christ. He uses the Old Testament teachings to help us, as we've been discovering, those of us who have been walking through Genesis several weeks now, He uses the Old Testament as well as the New to bring us to Christ. However, when we come to Christ, we dismount from the law. We don't need it anymore. The ten camels can go their way. They're unnecessary. How does the law bring us to Christ? Folks, the law truly points out how filthy my righteousness is and how greatly I need to be clothed by the righteousness of Jesus. When I begin to tend to those hungry, thirsty, noisy, smelly camels, the law, it's hard work. And it's a work that never ends. The camels will get thirsty again. They're going to need to get fed again. They're going to need to be cared for again. On and on and on. I've got to work and work and work the camels. I've got to work in the law. And I find myself not up to the task. And I find myself needing to be clothed by a different kind of righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6. We read this Sunday. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Folks, literally filthy garment there. And I heard this from someone and looked it up. Is menstrual rag. And I know that's graphic, but listen to this. <laughs> he says, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, like a menstrual rag. Now, hang on to this. I know this is embarrassing a little bit for some teaching, but listen. Isaiah 1.18, God says, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they will be gross. It's important you understand this language is used on purpose. It should disgust you. It should. It should gross you out because that is what your righteousness, my righteousness is like. And yet there's another kind of blood, the blood of Christ, which beautifully, perfectly cleanses me white as snow. The ten camels or commandments lead us to Jesus, reveal our need for his righteousness. But when we see Jesus, we get off the camels and we enter into his grace. Verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, literally a nose ring, weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrist, weighing ten shekels in gold. And he said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. <laughs> Again she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. And then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. Right there in front of Rebecca, he just, what else do you do when your prayer is immediately answered like that? He falls down on his knees and says, He said, Blessed be the Lord. The God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master, as for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. And the third way that you can be like the servant, the servant of the master walks in the way. The servant of the master walks in the way. This, this servant, Eleazar, cries out here, the Lord has guided me in the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the way. Six times in the book of Acts, the church is called the way. Isn't that cool? A great name for a church. Listen, it's the only time when we experience the fathers, when we come together for Bible study, or for worship, or for Sunday morning fellowship. If those are the only times that you're experiencing the Father, we're not walking in the way. To walk in the way is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment experience where we're seeking out the will of the Father, the will of the Master. We, um, this is cool. God wants you to be in the way. This is what He wants. He wants each of us in the way. Now, you all know, in my family of five, we're living down in a two-bedroom house right now. And the first time I, honestly, Barb, don't tell your mom I said this, but when I first walked into that house and looked around, I just went, there are five of us. And this is really nice, but there are five of us. How many bedrooms? Two? 
five of us. <laughs> I kept running in my mind, there are five of us. How are we going to fit and make it work here? From 2,400 square feet to 1,000. <laughs> How do you do that? You know what I've discovered over the last four months? We're having a ball. My family is closer now than we were four months ago. And we are always in each other's way. Always. We're in the kitchen and Corey's trying to fix his you know, macaroni and cheese because he won't eat whatever Cheryl cooks for him for dinner that night. And Hannah's over here coming through this way. And we're just we're always running into each other, each other and bumping into each other. And it reminds me of that scene in that, in that very life-impacting movie, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. You remember that? Very moving scene where the winter warlock... It's a good movie. The Winter Warlock moves in with the Kringles. And they're all over the place. They're bumping into each other. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm bothered by all this. People everywhere. And I'm, 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 I don't have any room. But I'm loved. I love that line. And that's how it feels to walk in the way. Maybe you're going to bump into other Christians. You're going you're gonna to get hurt sometimes. You're going to irritate each other. Some of you already have irritated me. <laughs> I'm going to irritate you. It's going to be difficult when family does that. You know, we bump into each other and we get in the way. But man, when we're walking in the way, we get closer. That's what God wants. He wants us walking in the way, just like the servant of Abraham is walking in the way. So the servant of the master does these things. He prays in the will. Or the servant of the master, she stays near the well, or we walk in the way. Notice one other thing back in verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold. What does the servant do? The servant is the picture of the spirit. He gives gifts to the bride. The servant gives gifts. In the same way that we are given gifts by the Spirit. Now, real quickly, because we don't have time tonight, I'm going to give you three books. Recommend three books that I would say pick these up, read them, study them. They'll give you a really good insight to the Spirit. Okay? Book recommendation number one, Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Second book, this is a great one. First Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And the third book, one of my favorites, Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to understand the Spirit better, go read those three sections of the Bible. And you'll see some amazing things. So the servant gives gifts to the bride, but what purpose do those gifts serve? Hold that thought and look at verse 28. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. And Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban will surface later in Scripture. He's a trickster. And Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. And when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists... And when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me. Well, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Verse 31, he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? Since I have prepared the house and a place for all the camels. And so the man entered the house. And then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Laban is a worldly guy, but something intrigues him. His sister, who was out by the well, comes walking in wearing a gold nose ring, which would have been, you know, cool in the day. Wearing two golden bracelets, and worldly Laban goes, What's up with the gifts? What's going on here? He's intrigued. He finds it interesting. Gang, the gifts for the bride are vitally important. God's servant, the Holy Spirit, gives gifts to the church. And these are not to be taken lightly, nor are they to be misunderstood. Let me give you quickly two obvious functions of the gifts of the Spirit. Two functions. Number one, the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit gives gifts to the bride to encourage the bride. Gifts are given to encourage the bride. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. For the common good. 
But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Folks, the gifts of the Spirit are to encourage the bride, the church. Therefore, the edification, the encouragement, the building up of the church. Romans chapter 12, verse 6 tells us, Since we have gifts that differ accordingly to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, and then Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. The gifts of the Spirit encourage the bride. That's one of the main reasons why they're given. We build each other up as we use the gifts that the Father, that the Spirit has given to us. But there's another reason for the gifts, and that is to intrigue the unbeliever. Laban, he sees the gifts. And he says, oh, wow, what's that? What's up with that? What's going on with the gold here? Where'd you get these gifts? Where'd that come from? I want to know more about this person. Tell me about this servant. It intrigues the unbeliever. Laban does take notice. And remember, the Spirit's work with the unbeliever is to do what? To invite them to Jesus. That's his role. That's what he's doing. So how do these gifts work for the unbeliever? Because honestly, if, if someone, if a church body just began to exercise all the gifts at once on a Sunday morning, and an unbeliever walked in, what's happening here? I don't even understand what that guy is saying. Oh, he does. How does he know? I don't know. And then they could just freak out. How does it work? If the gifts are to intrigue the unbeliever, if they're actually used to attract or affect the unbeliever, listen to me on this. First Corinthians 12, verse 31. Paul says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. See, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has just gone through just explaining, expressing the gifts. He will come back to the gifts in chapter 14. But before he does so, he inserts the love chapter. The most beautiful and the longest chapter on love in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, which begins, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love... I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries, and I have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. Paul says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And Jesus says, listen, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love each other, if you love each other, they will know. Gang, when the church is adorned with the gifts of the Spirit, exalting Jesus and encouraging each other, she becomes a thing of beauty to behold. As Rebecca walked back into the house with this fine, beautiful jewelry already on a very beautiful woman, Laban sees it and he's intrigued and he's interested and he wants to know more about where these gifts came from. And when the church is using the gifts rightly to encourage each other, to build each other up and to exalt Jesus, man, she becomes beautiful and the world is intrigued. The world begins to say, can I have some? I want what you've got. I, I want that glow, that joy, that caring fellowship. I want to be part of what's going on over there at the barn. I like that. I like how I feel when I'm there. And the way people are using their gifts to impact other lives. That's when the church is being the church. I love when the church is being the church. Not when the church is being the world. Not when the church is being an organization. Not when the church is being a religion. That's boring. I love when the church is being the church. A bride adorned for her husband with the gifts of the Spirit, exalting Jesus and encouraging each other. Verse 33. And you're going, how in the world are we going to get through all this? Trust me. But when the food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business, which is unusual because they always ate first and then they shared what their business was. I can't eat. I, I can't eat until I've told my business. And Laban said, he said, speak on. So he said, I'm Abraham's servant. 
The Lord has greatly blessed my master, so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. Notice that, Bible students. Does that sound like someone familiar? The father, Abraham, has given all things to the son, Isaac. John the Baptist in John chapter 3 verse 34 said, For he whom, the God has sent, whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Luke chapter 10 verse 22, Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. In the same way in verse 36, the servant says, He has given him all that he has. Another indication intentional, intricate indication of Jesus. Now, verses 37 all the way through 48, he recounts the exact story we just read. Almost word for word, the servant sits there and, and he tells the whole thing about how Abraham had him, you know, put his hand under the fire and that was a little uncomfortable. And then after that he made an oath and he left. Then he took donkey, uh, camels and, and stuff and they began to make this long ride, this journey, and he came to the well. Then he got to the well and he said, Lord, man, if it's your will, I want to find the right girl, so make her be the one who offers me a drink and then offers to, um, yeah, to give drink to all of my camels. And that'll be how I know that this is the right girl. Well, along comes Rebecca, he, he tells as the story goes on. And she walks up to the well and offers me a drink graciously. And then, I don't even say a word, she offers to give my camel's drink. Amazing. Then I discover that, that she is your, your sister, that she is of the family of Nahor, Abraham's brother. And so there's, she's Abraham's niece. This is exactly what I was looking for. This is awesome. And that brings us up to verse 49. See how fast we move through this? <laughs> So now, he says, if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I might, I might turn to the right hand or to the left. Here's the story, Laban. Here's the real deal. You want to know where my master came from, who my master is? Here's the picture. Here's the deal. Now, are you willing to let Rebecca become my master's wife? Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, <laughs> The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you good or bad. <laughs> In other words, how do we deny what God is doing? Unbelieving kinds of people like Laban, worldly folks, will see what God is doing when the Spirit adorns a church. And they'll say, what else could this be but God? And when that starts to happen, people's lives get changed. That's what we're hoping for right here. Verse 51, here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also, he also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. That's interesting. That now the gifts that were given to Rebekah are beginning to overflow and affect people in Rebekah's family. And Paul says it works like that. Remember when Paul talks about a married woman, a woman married to an unbeliever, a believer married to an unbeliever, and he says, hey, listen, you remain faithful in your belief, and through your faithfulness, that other person who doesn't believe will be sanctified, not saved, but sanctified by your belief. They'll be blessed. That marriage will be okay before God. Blessings will happen that, that overflow from the gifts that the Spirit has given you. Your family will receive good gifts as well. And that's an encouragement for any of us who live with family members who do not believe. As you live in the Spirit, as you walk in the Spirit, walk in the way, your family members will be blessed by the overflow of the gifts. Just as Laban and Rebecca's mother are in the passage. Verse 54. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night and they arose in the morning and she said, Send me away to my master. He said, send me away to my master, verse 55. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say ten, and afterwards she may go. Rebecca's mother and brother say, let her stay a little bit longer. Just hang on. We're not, I mean, you just came yesterday and you want to take her today. Let her stay a little bit longer. Understand here 
that the phrase a few days is added. It's not what it says. What it says literally is, let the girl stay with us, say ten, and afterward she may go. What does that, what does that mean? They're asking for ten months, not ten days. They want her to hang around. They're not really sure. Yeah, you can marry Isaac eventually, but let's not go off all half-cocked here and send you out to someone we don't even really know and, and everything just... That, that's a little fanatical, isn't it? Isn't that a little crazy? <laughs> I mean, you just became a believer and all of a sudden you want to go to a rally? It's weird. You just went to church for the first time and you gave your life to Jesus and now you're getting baptized? What? Huh? And the family's going... This is, this is too much. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on there, girl. You're moving too fast. Look at the servant's reaction. He says, Do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. When someone comes to the Lord, folks, the Lord does not want delays. He wants to get you home to the master as quickly as possible. He wants you connected with other believers as fast as possible. And we live in a world that says, don't get taken away by this servant too quickly. Don't get caught up in the, in the, in the, war, in the spirit too fast. Don't become one of those religious fanatics. Here's the deal. The language of the world is temporary, but the language of eternity is faith. The world says, don't get caught up, but faith says being caught up is the only way to fly. I want to be caught up. I'll tell you what, if there is anything in your life worth being fanatical about, it's Jesus Christ. Don't fear that. Hey, man, if the Spirit's in control, what have you got to lose? Ride on that wind. And what does the servant say here? Again, he says, hey, don't delay me. The Lord has prospered my way. Send me away. I want to go to my master. Verse 57, they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. And then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And I love this. She said, I will go. And thus they sent her away, their sister Rebecca and her nurse with Abraham's servants and his men. What does Rebecca really even know at this point? She knows there's a guy named Abraham who is her grandpa's brother. and She knows that he has a son named Isaac she's never seen before. She knows that. She knows this servant from a day. She's seen the gift, she's heard the story, she knows that God is doing something. But this is all Rebecca knows. She doesn't know anything else. All she has seen so far is the servant, all she has heard is the servant's teaching. But she says in faith, I will go. Folks, we haven't yet seen the bridegroom ourselves, but the day is fast approaching. We don't know exactly what he looks like. We know from Scripture, we know from what the servant has told us about the bridegroom. That's all we know. But we look forward to, we long for his coming in faith. All Rebecca has heard at this point is maybe a little bit of the servant's teaching. Same with us. But she says, I'll go. First Peter chapter 1, verse 8 tells us, Though you have not seen him, you'll love him. And though you do not now see him, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Verse 60. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. And then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. And so the servant took Rebekah, and she departed. And now the bridegroom appears, coming from another well, verse 62. Isaac, Isaac, whoa. The horses are rowdy tonight. I, you know, when is, the, when is the last time a pastor's message got interrupted by a horse name? You just got to love this. Verse 62. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahai Roy... For he was living out in the Negev, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. I love this picture of Isaac, because it's Jesus. He's out in the field, he's meditating. The word meditate, it's pray. Isaac is out there praying. Now Isaac knows his father has sent for a bride, but he doesn't go and find her. He waits for her, as we said. He lets the servant do his job, but in the meantime he prays for her. 
He's out there meditating about this upcoming marriage, thinking about it, praying for this girl who he doesn't even yet know her name, this Rebecca. And you know what Jesus is doing for you right now as we study and long for the day he returns? He's praying for you. The Bible tells us that's what he's doing. He's not up there administrating heaven, managing the business, the family business. He is praying for you. He is longing for your return. He wants to see, you think you want to see him bad, like I said, he wants to see you more. He can't wait for the day when his bride arrives. Romans 8, verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He prays. This is what Jesus is doing. And Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Isaac is meditating, no doubt, praying for his bride. And Jesus is praying for you, longing for your return. Verse 64, Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted, literally fell off the camel. And she said to the servant, who is the man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, check this, catch this, he is my master. Wait a minute, I thought Abraham was your master. That's right. But the one coming in the field is Isaac. And you're saying he's your master? That's right. I thought you said God, Jehovah was your God. That's right. But you call Jesus your God as well? That's right. He is my master. Jehovah is my master. Jesus is my master. And even the servant spirit. God is my master. The Bible tells us she took her veil and she covered herself. Now, she's preparing for a wedding. Quickly putting up the veil, preparing to meet the bridegroom. You see, Jewish wedding, Hebrew tradition, tells us the following. And some of you have heard this. But the will of the Father determined the marriage. It was an arranged marriage among the Jews in Hebrew tradition. The father picked out the bride, chose the bride, or would send a servant to do so, as in the case of Abraham, sending a servant to find a bride for his son. It was arranged, and the son didn't choose that, but the, the servant did, the father did. And then the bridegroom and the bride would meet, and cups of wine were shared, and dowries were paid, and a betrothal would begin, and time would then pass. They, they'd meet, and, and then they'd separate, go back to their lives. And time would pass, sometimes as much as a year would go by in between the meeting of the bridegroom and the bride for the first time until finally they come back together. What happens during that time? In Hebrew tradition, the son went back to the father's house to build on an addition for his new wife. He went home and he began the building process. He began to hammer it and pull up the boards and get the floor laid and put in the sink and the kitchen and the bathrooms. He did it all set and ready to go. And during that time, the father would watch and he would inspect the work of the son. And when the work was complete, then the father would declare all things ready. The son didn't do that. The son was busy, remember, preparing a place for you. John 14, 3, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. So the father declares all things ready and the son goes out to call his bride. But the son and the bride have no idea when that day is going to be until that day arrives. It's a big surprise, which is great. The father says to the son, all right, go get your bride. And in that moment, for the first time, the son himself knows, Mark 13, 32, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. He knows when the wedding day is. Finally, the bride is called out, and the wedding and the marriage feast occurs, and the bride would then be brought from the wedding and from the marriage feast into the bridal chamber that the son had been building. And they went into the chamber, and they closed the door behind them, and traditionally, they would remain in the chamber, in the bridal room, in that addition on the house, for seven days, which is the exact length of time of that time called the tribulation in Revelation. See the picture here. The church is called up to meet the bridegroom, to go to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Seven years while tribulation is happening on the earth, where's the bride? Where's Rebecca? Where's the church? At the marriage feast. On our honeymoon with Jesus. Look at verse 66. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into her, his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, 
Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. You may recall Sarah died. We read that last week, Genesis 23. And so Sarah's tent is now empty. Now, as we close out, one final thing. And note this closely, you students of the Bible. Listen to this. Isaac brings Rebekah into his mother's tent, and this speaks volumes to us. For Sarah, Abraham's wife, also represents somebody in the story. Sarah represents Israel. Israel. Rebekah, Isaac's bride, is a type of the bride of Christ. But look, Rebekah is brought into the place of Sarah. Sarah is put away. She's buried. She's now out of the picture for a time, for a season. She is put into the grave, so to speak. And the bride of Christ, the bride of Isaac, Rebekah, comes into the tent of Sarah and in a way takes her place. Now, some of you may go, wait, 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 wait a minute. That sounds like replacement theology. Replacement theology, if you haven't heard, is that belief that the church is new Israel. That Israel had its chance. God is now through with the Jew. They blew it. They didn't believe when they had the chance. So they are out of the picture. And the church is now new Israel. And that is incredibly faulty where scripture is concerned. Because the Bible is clear that God is not through with Israel. He is not through with the Jew. But in this picture, Rebecca comes into Sarah's tent. The church comes into the place where Israel was prior to all this happening. I want to tell you so much here. Just know this, that the church does not replace Israel. She does displace Israel for a season until something wonderful happens. Look at verse 1 of chapter 25. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. What does all this mean? Come back Sunday morning and I'll tell you. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for this, this amazing chapter. The story of the life of Isaac and Rebecca. God, I, just, I get more and more excited. It seems like every time we finish one study and we turn to the next, there are more amazing things to learn and to discover and to know. And, and that's what we want to be about. Father, would you bless this study of the Word? Help us to be like the servant. Lord Jesus, help us to pray in the Master's will, to stay by the well, and, and Lord, to walk in the way. Be among us, Holy Spirit, and adorn us with gifts. Gifts that you use, that, that we can then use in turn to encourage each other and exalt the name of Christ, and also to entreat the world. And may we simply, Father, as a body of believers here, be used to the benefit of your kingdom and for the sake of your will. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.